0: This morning we're back in the book of Revelations. Uh, We are in the funnest section that possibly exists. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. How exciting, eh? Last week we spent some time setting up this entire series and I gave you some insights just to remind you of them. I said to you that this event, the bowls, I don't believe is another event or a separate event or another thing that's got to happen at some point that we have to wait for. I believe, again, as I've said this many times, what we're seeing is God's one plan for salvation, for his humanity and his people, all happening, albeit from different perspectives. And that means that the seven bowls and the seven trumpets are really looking at the same event. They are the opposite sides of the same coin. The trumpets are the warnings to a world that's turned it back on God, that it needs to come back to him. And ultimately, the bowls, the wrath, the execution of God's justice is what happens when those warnings are ignored and people still choose to reject the gospel. We also know that because God is absolutely holy and absolutely perfect, that he cannot stand evil. And I don't know about you, but this world is a sinful place. This world's full of sin. You know? And let's not be uh, self-righteous and say we don't ever sin. The fact is we are still tormented by sin, even as believers say, but Jesus has the authority to help us overcome it in the name of Jesus, right? But as long as sin exists in this world, there's one concept that we have to understand, and that is the wrath of God is always going to be on this world. It cannot be removed until sin has been dealt with in its entirety. And that means that sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to discuss things that aren't altogether that easy, right? They are uncomfortable realities. Some of you might even think that what we're going to talk about this morning could be offensive to some people. Paul says something interesting to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. He says that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. What the whole counsel of God is the entirety of God's word, everything, the good, the bad, the difficult, the ugly, not just the stuff that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And so I'm sorry I don't have a warm and fuzzy message for you today, but we want to be a church that declares the whole counsel of God. We want to unpack it all. Because every part of Scripture is breathed out by God and is valuable for correction, for reproof, and for us to grow in our faith. Amen? And so that brings us to these seven bowls themselves. Uh, Last week I was asked a question. It was a good question. And that question was this. What does it look like to have God's wrath poured out? I mean, what does that actual look like? What does it mean? Like, what does it mean the wrath of God is being poured out on people right now? This morning I hope to unpack that by going through these bowls. But I do want to remind us of something. And that's something that Paul said in Romans 1 verse 18. And this is a concept we need to always hold in our minds and have the back of our, at the back of our minds as we live our lives out as believers. And that is this, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so whether you choose to believe it or not, the fact of the matter is God's wrath is being poured out right now to somebody somewhere in the world. And it's not going to stop, friends. It's got to run its course. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 16. We're going to read quite a lot this morning. We're going to read 20, passages of, uh, 20 verses of Scripture. Gosh, 20 passages would be all day. That's like the book of Revelations. But we're going to read 20 verses. And to help us get through it, I'm going to break up these 20 verses into two sections. But let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we preach from it, that you would breathe life into it. We know that it is living and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between bone and marrow. And I pray that this morning the word would not be, you know, just lost on us, that you would take these seeds, Lord, that you're sowing, even though it's uncomfortable stuff to hear, and that you'd breathe life into us, fresh life, Lord, that we would go out more excited about the gospel than we've ever been. That will speak to more people about the gospel than we ever have, and that will see more lives changed for the kingdom than we ever thought was possible. And I pray this today, and I pray for your anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, the reason we're breaking up the bowls into two sections is often in Revelation, when you have seven things happening, and you'll notice things happen a lot in seven in, in Revelation seven trumpets, seven seals, seven letters, seven bowls, seven visions you name it, they're all in sevens. Generally, those seven things are grouped into two subgroupings. There's four things that are similar and three things that are different. It was the same, if you remember, with the trumpets. Four trumpets, the trumpet judgment against the land, the sea, the rivers, and the heavens. And now in the bowls, we're going to see the same thing. There's going to be four bowls, land, sea, rivers, and heavens. The last three trumpets were trumpets that were sort of supernatural in nature. They affected the kingdoms of darkness. You're going to see the same thing happening this morning. And so verse 2 of Revelation 16 starts, it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people, who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This opening sort of verse of the bowls actually gives us some stuff that help us, or at least some concepts that are applicable to all of the bowls, and I just want to just talk about those concepts real quick. The first is that unlike the first four trumpets, you remember the trumpet warnings against the sea, the land, the river, and the air were always restricted to one-third. So when God brought the trumpet judgment against the sea, it was one-third of the sea would be affected by all of this stuff. And one-third of the land, one-third of the heavens, and ultimately it would be one-third of the rivers. Well, what we notice immediately now is that there is no restraint. There's no restriction in the bowls. Everything is going to be affected. Everything on this earth is going to be affected. Now you think, well, what does that mean for us as believers? It means that those that carry the mark of the beast, those that have chosen the kingdom of darkness over the kingdom of light, are going to be affected in totality. There is no running away from this. If you've chosen to reject God's ways and instead chosen to follow the enemy's ways, you are going to face this judgment. There is no hope and no room for you to accept grace because you've decided to reject it. Hallelujah? I mean, that's not hallelujah, that's pretty weird, but it's true. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, this is the seed of fever It's talking to me. Anyway, there is no more restraint. I also want to say something quite clearly. If you haven't been here for any of the other parts of Revelation, we've spoken at length about the Mark of the Beast. What is it? What isn't it? What could it be? And there's many interpretations on this, so let me just tell you my interpretation. I don't believe that the Mark of the Beast is a physical or literal mark. It's not a barcode. It's not a thing that's going to be tattooed onto our foreheads. It's not going to be a credit card that you secretly have stashed in your wallet. It's not your number plate. And I also don't believe it's a vaccine. It's nothing physical. The kingdom of darkness is represented by this number 666 because it's humankind at its worst. It's humanity at the, thir- at the power of three. In other words, think of all the evil, all the bitterness, all the anger, all the resentment that we carry as human beings and multiply that by three. That's the kingdom of darkness. Those that have rejected to follow Jesus. On the other hand, 777, the number for com- completion and perfectness, represents those that have chosen Christ. There's only two kingdoms in operation in this world. There aren't more than two kingdoms. There are not 15 ways to God. There's only one way to God, and his name is Jesus. And you either choose him or you don't, and that's as simple as it is. If you don't, you're on that side of the equation. If you do, you're on his side of the equation, and I want to be there, right? I know all of us want to be there. But it does bring us to our first point because we start to get an indication of what it means for God to pour out his wrath. Ball number one seems to indicate that God's wrath is delivered through sickness and disease. I know everyone's really concerned at this point because can you raise your hand if you've never been sick? Okay, We'll get to that and I'll explain to you what I mean by this and how we need to understand this as believers but before I get to that let me just talk about this bowl in particular. This bowl is very similar to the plague of boils that was poured out on the nation of Egypt. Remember? The sixth plague, the boils that affected Egypt Remember how God gave them an opportunity to let the nation of Israel go. They wouldn't do it, and so he brings ten plagues. One of them is this plague of boils. The context, though, or at least in Revelations, it seems like this sickness or these sicknesses are ones that will lead to death. And so how do we actually see it in operation? What is an example of that? I don't know if you guys know, there was a horrible king that existed during Jesus' time. His name was Herod. Herod lived on this earth. He was a king that served himself only. He was against God's people. In fact, he was against anyone that wasn't him. He was a placator, a people pleaser. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration. He gave them a speech, right? And people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last." Whatever killed Herod in that moment was sudden, it was dramatic, and it was desperate, right? There was a disease involved here. I know that ultimately when we are buried, we do decompose, but the sense is here it was something that happened in an instant. Why? Because Herod took what was rightfully only God's. He took God's glory, And he imposed it on himself and as we can see the wrath of God was poured out from heaven on Herod in that instant because time and again Herod had chosen to reject God remember Herod had the opportunity to be face to face with Jesus he met Jesus and even after meeting Jesus he still chooses to reject him and that's why we see what happened to Herod happen verse 3 the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse And every living thing died that was in the sea. It seems to indicate to me that God's wrath is poured out through the destruction of what we call our environment. The second trumpet was all about the judgment on the sea. This trumpet is exactly the same, except now it's not a warning that's being poured out. It is absolute and total wrath. John sees this vision. It's pretty vivid. The sea is turned into blood. It's not just any blood. It's the blood of a dead corpse. Now, I don't know about you, but I never want to see that kind of blood. It's probably coagulated, probably stinks, and it's not a nice place. What it also tells us is that blood, because it's the ocean now, is unable to sustain any life in it because it is dead. And so there's this reality that we live in a world that is in its downward spiral in terms of getting more and more ruined. Pollution is a reality in all of our lives. Nobody here in this room is not affected by it or unaffected by it. But there's also a lot of precedence in the Old Testament, specifically, that the sea is used to bring judgment on God's enemies too. For example, in Psalm 78, and verse 53, it says, He led them in safety so they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. God uses the ocean to often destroy His enemies. In this case, in the context, here's the nation of Israel, crossing the Red Sea. They made it through fire, and the sea was their protection. However, for those that didn't choose, or the Egyptians, who definitely weren't choosing to follow God, they ended up dying. And it's not just the oceans, right? Because verse 4 of chapter 16 goes on to say this, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And so like the trumpet was the judgment on the rivers, the, four, the third bowl here is the same. And it's telling us that as much as the seas are going to be affected by the wrath of God, so are the rivers. And if we think about it again, we see this happening all the time. We see it all around us. The world's oceans today are filled with plastic islands, islands that don't really belong there, but they're there anyway. There are parts of the ocean where people are unable to fish like they used to fish 100 years ago because all the fish are dead. There are parts of our rivers, even in America, that cannot be drunk. Water is no longer water anymore because it's been contaminated over and over again. The depravity of humanity has reached the point where the wrath of God is allowing us as human beings to continue doing what we do. I don't know if you've picked up a challenge with this because it seems to me that this judgment is extremely excessive. It's excessive because the fact is all of us live in a created world. And so if God's wrath is poured out on creation, that means that all of us as believers are also going to be affected by this. Something I'll clarify in a little while. Verse 5, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you a holy one. And so I just told you it's excessive, it's unfair, why is God doing this? But hear what the angel was saying. He's saying, just and holy are you, God, for bringing about the judgments that you've brought about. He goes on to say this, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What it seems to tell me is that God is absolutely within his authority and his righteousness to do what he's doing. There's two angels, right? One pours out the bowl, the other angel who's in charge of all the waters of all the world, instead of saying, what are you doing? You're running the water. It's not cool anymore. The, the turtles are going to get straws in their noses and all of this stuff. No, he says right and just are your judgments you know why and this is interesting the major concept of the book of revelation is the church of the lord jesus christ is facing persecution do you remember the seven letters to the seven churches we read about a church in smyrna where people were dying for their faith today in iran afghanistan uh, uh, iraq many other countries in the world india christians are being stoned and slaughtered just because they will not turn away from jesus And it seems to indicate that the blood of the saints that we heard about early on in the Revelation, the the same blood that in the seven um, trumpets rises up to God through the, the altar of incense, mingled with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, has finally ascended to God the Father. Remember earlier on in Revelations, when the saints say, Lord, how long do we have to wait? Those of us that have been killed and martyred for our faith, those of us who've been carrying our crosses and counting our losses, not just waiting for prosperity to come, but suffering at the hands of a world that is against us, how long, Lord, will you bring your vindication? Early on in Revelations, Jesus, God the Father, says this. He says, it is not yet time. Here's a robe, wear it and wait. Now that time has come, friends. Judgment, vindication, righteous judgment, just judgment is being poured out. I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I have. I always wonder, one day when I stand before God, I didn't even start my clock, so I don't know what's going to happen. You start, no, You don't tell me you started your clock. I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I've had this thought before. Where when I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm exposed to all of the sinners in this world being cast into hell, will I ever question whether God was doing what he should have been doing or not? In other words, will I ever question whether those people were deserving of punishment or not? What this text does, as horrendous as it is and as hard to hear as it is, comforts us because it reminds us that God only punishes those who deserve punishment God will only judge those who deserve judgment God is not a callous God he's not sitting in heaven just waiting for the next opportunity to hurt somebody here on this earth God is a just God he only meters out punishment on those who choose to reject him that's the key and I believe that when I'm standing before God Because of the precedence I have in Scripture, because I know God is just and He loves us, I know that whenever I see somebody being cast into hell, I will know that they are there because they chose something other than Him. Verse 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of the God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. And so it's the earth, it's the rivers, it's the sea, and now it's also the sky. The same as the fourth trumpet judgment. And while there's a lot of things that could be happening here, and to be honest, there's so many different interpretations about these bowls that I could be here for the rest of the morning just trying to give you every person's interpretation, whether it's the ozone layer that's being destroyed, whether it's Global warming, if you believe in global warming, if you don't, it's okay, whatever. Uh, If it's, I don't know, UV rays that are like super powerful and they're going to beam on us and burn us. But the reality is whatever it is, there is something that's so important to take. And that is that the wicked, those that have chosen to reject the gospel, even in the face of their own suffering, right now they're burning. They choose not to repent and instead they continue to blaspheme God. That's mind-blowing to me. And it's a recurring theme. You'll see that this will come again in Revelations. But let me deal with some of those tough questions now. You see, here's the reality. Is that every one of us in this room, as I've said, nobody is exempt, has been sick at some point in their lives. Perhaps some of us have lost those that are very dear to us through disease. And what these bowls are not saying... And I want to make this very clear to us as a church. These bowls are not telling us that anyone that's been struck by sickness, died from a disease, whether that's past or present, or for that matter, people who live in a country that's plagued by disease, by drought, by pollution or disaster, are under the wrath of God. That is not what the text tells us. You've got to understand that. Please don't go tell people that the reason they're sick is because they're under God's wrath. That is not what I'm saying. And it's not true. Because the fact of the matter is, there are going to be people in certain countries in the world that will die from a drought. Fact, they will die of thirst. There are going to be people somewhere in the world who might be affected by environmentally born diseases, and they will die. It doesn't mean that those individuals are under the wrath of God. What we are talking about are people who choose to reject the gospel in the face of these judgments. Remember, the same side of the same coin is in operation. And here's the deal, we as believers, even though we are not the object of God's wrath, we are not the target of God's wrath, are not unaffected by God's wrath. It's impossible for us to live in a world that's falling apart and say, oh, well, you know, we've just got to be saved on a little island somewhere, Lord, and keep us. That's why the rapture as a theology becomes something that... We love to hear because it tells us that we'll be removed long before any of this ever happens. I personally don't believe in that because here's my question. If God's church is the mechanism that brings the gospel to a dying world, why would God remove us before any of this stuff happens? The world needs to hear the message. Now that's my interpretation. Don't throw stones at me. Don't think I'm a heretical believer. I'm allowed to interpret the Bible this way. But I don't believe that the rapture is something that's going to save us. I believe we're meant to go side by side into some of the toughest things that we'll ever face in this world together with unbelievers. Why? Because the megaphone of our suffering is the loudest thing at the moment when people are at their most desperate. And you only have a megaphone to shout to a dying world when you're suffering alongside them. You see, if I'm okay and I'm driving my BMW 7 Series, if you have one, that's great. And I'm cool and like people are dying of thirst and hunger. And I'm saying, you know, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Jesus loves you. There is no value. There is no power. There's no meaning in that. But if I'm side by side with you in the trenches saying, you know what, no matter what I'm going through right now, Jesus is God. My God is a good God. And I love him regardless. Man, people say that faith that has kept you alive, that faith that makes you want to go to your own death because you follow Jesus is a faith that I want to live for. And so we need to suffer alongside the world in some of these things. But here's something that Paul tells us to encourage us as the church. In Romans 8 verse 28, we all know the scripture, right? What does he say? He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for our good, no matter what suffering we go through. God will bring something good from it, and it's not just for our own good, it's for His glory. Now we get to the second section. I hope everyone understands it. Please go and tell tell people if they are sick, it's because they have unconfessed sin, friends. That is not biblical. Okay, it's not true. Because otherwise I'm in trouble. Because the cedar fever, you know, actually, no, I don't know. So with the last three trumpets, what we saw was very different bowls. These bowls are different, I mean, different judgments. These bowls are different too. I say that. The first four bowls... Affected humanity indirectly. In other words, God was pouring out his wrath on creation, on the world, on the surroundings that we live in, and as a result, people were affected from it. The next three bowls are going to affect us directly, but just like with the trumpets, these bowls are going to affect humanity directly because of the power, or because of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and his minions, and his evil influence that he's had on this world. Chapter, I mean, chapter 16 and verse 10 says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, the ones that they got right at the beginning. And here it is again: they did not repent of their deeds. The fourth thing they will see is that it seems to indicate that God's wrath is poured out against all the wicked systems of this world. All these systems that have set themselves up in opposition to the God of the Bible are going to come under judgment. Do you remember the beast of the sea that we spoke about in the last section, the beast that rises up out of the ocean and I said that that beast represents the anti-Christian regimes in operation in this world, whether that's governments, institutions, secret societies, whatever it is that's out there that is against God's people, will those particular regimes are going to come under God's wrath but what's interesting to me is it's not just that the enemy's throne is is plunged into darkness it's almost as if the people who have been supporting standing by and cheering the enemy on are now suffering as a result Think about it. When the structures that you've placed so much trust in, when you are so angry with God and you're angry with Christians and you've got all this venom inside of you, when your king, whether it was a nation in the past or whether it's a system of government that fails, what do we see? People start going crazy. They start like, literally, they look like they're going to explode. They become filled with anguish. They don't know what to do with themselves. The Bible says they will ch- they will chew their own tongue. That's how desperate these people will become because the thing that they've been worshipping for their entire lives Is now destroyed do you know that we become what we worship if you are worshiping the beast you will become the beast friends you will become more like him and all of us in this room and everyone in this world is worshiping something the question is what is it that we're worshiping because if it's not Jesus let me tell you you'll end up in a dark place we can only worship one person his name is Jesus and that's why the Bible says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next because beholding the Lord Jesus Christ we are being transformed What we also notice is that these people are exempt, or at least there's one blessing that is withheld from them, and that is the blessing of repentance. It suggests to us that in the the experience of unbelievers, their response to suffering, even suffering that's caused by their own sin and rebellion, is not to turn to God, but to blame him and to run away from him. The same thing happened to Pharaoh. Ten plagues of every increasing severity. After every plague, it almost seems like Pharaoh's heart's changed, but then the Bible says something interesting, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We're dealing with a world, unfortunately, that has a very hard heart. It's not everyone, but a lot of people do. Verse 14, The sixth angel poured out his bow on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Further point is it seems that the wrath of God is poured out on all the enemies of God's people. They might be thinking but That doesn't make any sense. He's not talking about God's people. He's talking about rivers and beasts and frogs and all sorts of crazy stuff. How do we get this interpretation? In Trumpet 6 we encounter a, a huge time of chaos that's coming on the world. It's the time that sort of precedes the final judgment day ultimately when Jesus returns to this earth to judge the world, right? It's a time of severe chaos, severe disruption, something similar is happening. But it's communicating within all of the symbolism something very important. Notice that it mentions the river Euphrates. We've heard this before in Revelations and this is again my interpretation. I know that some people are watching the live feed of the river Euphrates right now to see whether it's dry or not. But I don't think that it's actually talking about the river Euphrates. The Euphrates River, symbolically speaking, was always meant to be the eastern most edge of the nation of Israel. It was their most extreme eastern border. It was the same border that separated them from all of their enemies. And the river Euphrates is a big river. Believe me, it was very hard for anyone to cross it. And so when it says that the river Euphrates has dried up, there is this sense that because the river has been removed, there is nothing preventing the forces that are amassing against us to come and bring persecution and opposition to God's people. Now, we are not Israel, just to be clear. And Israel is not the church, but we are a representative today of God's people. And if the river, which is our defense, has been removed, that means now people are going to come and oppose us, friends. And I know this is something that none of us in this church wants to hear, but the fact of the matter is that we are going to face ever-increasing opposition as the world draws to its end. It's not going to get better. It's going to get harder. We're not going to a block anymore. (laughs) The second thing that we see is that there are characters mentioned in this, right? There is the beast, right? Which, I mean, the dragon that represents Satan. The beast represents the wicked systems of this world, those ones that have been plunged into darkness. The false prophet represents false religion. But what we notice is from their mouths come three unclean spirits, like frogs. Frogs were always considered to be unclean in the Old Testament. Nobody wanted to eat no frog's legs in Egypt, I mean in Israel, believe me. They were unclean animals, and what it's telling us is that in the end times, as we draw nearer to the end, satanic opposition, persecution against God's people, and false religion are going to unite together in one mega structure that's going to bring opposition against the church. And God is warning us as the the church that this time is coming. The frogs have been given the power to perform signs, it says. You see, false miracles are not true miracles, The enemy can do his own miracles and we see people doing these false miracles all the time. But there's an indication that as their ability to produce these false miracles increases, it's going to galvanize the world in coming against the church. Why? Because they believe, look, we've got the upper hand. Look what we can do. And again, this is all a warning to us that as the end draws near, more opposition will come. But, here's the deal, when things seem to be at their worst, when things seem to be at their most, sort of severe for us as God's people, in that moment, hope is on its way. Mm -hmm. Revelation 16, 15, behold, this is Jesus speaking, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and exposed. You see, when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back at an unexpected moment. None of us know the day, time or hour. And don't let anyone ever tell you they know when Jesus is coming because they don't. He kept it. In fact, God the Father has hidden it in the mystery of ages. But when Jesus comes, he will reveal himself and he will bring to bear his judgment on all of these things that have been opposing his church. And so there's a day where no matter how bad things are, no matter how much we can't take anymore, we're going to see him riding on the clouds, friends. And when that judgment cry comes, we know we've been saved. But here's the deal. Notice what he says. He gives us two commandments. He says that you as the church, we as the church need to do two things. Stay awake. In other words, don't fall asleep. In other words, expect that he's coming back. Sometimes we think, oh, no, he's never coming back. Believe me, friends, he's coming back. It could be tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe it's right now. I don't know when he's coming back, but we need to be awake. And if we're honest, the church has fallen asleep. We've been lulled to sleep with all of this nonsense in this world. We've been distracted by all the things I spoke about last week, and I don't even want to get into that again. But the church is sleeping, friends. What's more, the church is not even dressed. You know, it says, make sure that you have your clothes on so that you are not caught exposed. When a church sleeps and when a church is naked, let me tell you what happens. Deception comes in. And before long, we're not the church anymore. We're not part of the systems of this world. And it's happened throughout the ages. Churches literally have turned their backs on the gospel message. They've gone to something other than the gospel. And believe me, when Jesus comes back, they will be found wanting and they'll be found naked. I don't want to be that church. Verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. There's all sorts of images that uh, this word Armageddon pops up in our mind. Where's my image? Oh my gosh. I was going to put Ben Affleck up there, you know, Liv Tyler, (laughs) Will, I mean, not Will Smith, Bruce Willis. I mean, we all watched that movie, right? Armageddon. The meteors come in and they're in space and they're drilling and. Nuclear bombs suck, it's it's so sad as well because they all die, or he dies. And I mean, it's just, you know, I don't want to go into it, it just really hurts my heart. (laughs) But that, friends, is not Armageddon. That's not what Armageddon is, I don't believe. You see, the word Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words. Notice the text is quite clear. In Hebrew, it's the word Armageddon. In Hebrew, it's the word Armageddon. So what does it mean in Hebrew, right? The word Ha, Armageddon, actually is made up of two words. The first word is Ha. It's actually pronounced Armageddon. Ha means mountain. Okay, that's what the word Ha means. Megiddon means a place in the southwestern part of the Jezreel Valley, a town called Megiddo. Okay, that's what it's indicating. It's speaking about this event happening in a place called the Jezreel Valley. There's some interesting things about the Jezreel Valley. It's the place where Deborah and Barak fought against the Canaanites in Judges 4. It's where Gideon defeated the Midianites in the book of Gideon, I mean, on the book of Gideon, in Judges. It's where Israel and the Philistines battled more than once. The point it's making is that this was a natural place where people gathered against Israel. It was a place where if you wanted to attack Israel, that's where you wanted to go. The Jezreel Valley provided an open route and open access to attack God's people. I don't believe it's actually symbolizing or telling us that it's going to happen in a literal place. And so the question then comes, is Armageddon going to be this massive deployment of military forces where there's going to be this kinetic war with tanks and airplanes and spaceships and the Nephilim and all of the stuff that's coming back? I don't know. You can get lost in this stuff. Believe me, there's many different interpretations for this. But is it a physical place where there's going to be the showdown of all showdowns, where nuclear bombs are going to blow up and all of us are going to die? See I don't think so. People that often have that interpretation believe that Jesus is coming back in multiple returns, generally three, first, second, and third coming. The second coming and the third coming are separated by seven years. This war according to that interpretation happens right at the end of the seven-year period. The challenge with that interpretation, and again I'm just putting out there my challenges, is that it's based on one of the most difficult passages of scripture to ever interpret and that's the book of Daniel. It's really, really hard to do. And so to build a theology out of that, at least for me, doesn't make sense to myself. And so what we do is we have to look at it symbolically. And the name Armageddon is symbolic by its very nature. It's not a literal name. Armageddon doesn't exist as a place. Ha, mountain. Right, that's the beginning of the word, ha, mountain. There are no mountains in the valley of Jezreel. That's just a fact. The nearest mountain is Mount Carmel, and it's really far away. So there is no mountains in the Jezreel Valley. I believe that's a signal to us that this is not an actual place. But then why use the word mountain? Well, throughout the Old Testament, there's many examples of battles that have been fought in the mountains of Israel, where God gives his people victory over the enemy. For example, Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel. He's speaking to this thing called Gog, which represents all the things that are against God's people. You and your hordes and the peoples who are with you, I'll give you to the birds of prey and every sort and every beast of the field to be devoured. The Lord wins, friends. That's the message. And it's with this view that I believe that what we see happening at Armageddon is the depiction of the fierce and relentless battle between the world and God's people. It's a worldwide battle that's happening right now between sin and righteousness. It's a battle between Jesus and his church against Satan and his forces of wickedness. And the weapons of the warfare, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, are clear. These are not physical weapons. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, friends, but against rulers, against principalities, against powers of of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, our battle needs to be fought on our knees. Praying, trusting, seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, protect us. Give us boldness and courage to fight this war. And it reminds us of some critical things. And I want us to remember these things. You might not like it and you might not agree with me and that's okay. But here's the fact. Satan has always wanted to crush God's people. It started in the Garden of Eden. It shouldn't be a surprise to us today. He's not our friend. He's not your friend. Believe me, he doesn't want your good. He wants you to die and to turn to him ultimately. Satan is against us. And whether that's through false religion or persecution, he's coming. Secondly, Satan, like he was allowed to oppress Job, is going to be allowed by God to bring oppression on God's people. You know, Job wasn't just oppressed because, you know, Satan snuck away from God. What does God say? Go and test my servant Job. Look at him. Look how amazing this guy is. And Satan says, well, let me do what I want to do. He says, that's fine. You can do what you need to do. Just do not kill him. Oppression, the river, the Euphrates river is lowered by God so that we as the church can galvanize with our king in his kingdom to fight his battles, not our own. And while it seems like Satan might get a victory, his victory is short. And ultimately it's the precursor to his judgment. This oppression, the persecution we face is part of God's plan in bringing the final judgment and rising the church to its place of victory. Verse 17 shows us the seventh angel poured out his bow into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The voice in the temple, friends, is the same voice that we hear speaking throughout the bowls. It's the same voice we see speaking in the seven trumpets. It is the voice of God himself. And notice what he says. He says, it is done. Does that remind you of something? What? What? Jesus, on the cross, crying out, it is finished. Tetelesta. What was Jesus saying? I came and I accomplished everything that I was meant to accomplish. I bought with, these, with my blood the people who I call my own, and they can be saved and will be saved for the rest of eternity. There is nothing and no one that can snatch them out of my hand, Right? And so what's the God the Father saying now? He's saying because the gospel message through Jesus Christ accomplished what it needed to accomplish at the cross, now that gospel message, because we believe in the Great Commission, we know Christ and we make Him known, have taken the message, preached it to all the world, every person who knows the name of Jesus Christ has been given the opportunity to be saved. Now that that's done, it is over. Judgment is about a fall. And as a result we will see the destruction of Babylon in its entirety. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great, great earthquake, such as never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities and the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Lightnings, thunder, earthquakes always symbolizes the wrath of God. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Those are two important concepts I want us just to hold on to. Mountains and islands, and great hailstones, like the plagues, about 100 pounds fell. Each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Man, this is a picture of total and utter destruction, friends. The enemies of God have been defeated. Babylon, the systems of this world, the wicked systems are gone. The enemy's throne has been plunged into darkness. This is not a scary message. This is not a message of woe. And yes, even though we're going to come under persecution, the fact is all of us in this room have faced persecution already. We know it. It's coming. It's there. It's out there. But guess what? They will be destroyed. And it says two things, islands and mountains. Think about the islands that exist in this world today that we think can never be reached. Now, depending on your level of conspiracy theory, you're probably going in your mind to people like the Illuminati, right? Nobody knows who they are, but we do know they want to kill babies and they want to kill us. And perhaps that's true. I don't know. But the fact is, nobody knows who they are. We can't get to them. Every island will be destroyed. Those systems in the world that we think we cannot reach can be reached by God and they will be destroyed. Every mountain, every structure that has set itself up against God, even the biggest of the biggest, the the, the mountain of abortion will be destroyed by God. The mountain of, you know, pleasure and comfort will be destroyed by God. The mountain of sex trafficking will be destroyed by God. There is nothing that is out of God's reach. These mountains and islands will be destroyed. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And believe me, if you think you're angry about that stuff, because I am, every life is sacred. Can you imagine how angry God is? I'm getting mad now. God will give the world that has persistently rejected Him the opportunity to drink from the bottom of the cup of the fury of His wrath. Think about that. You know, back in the day when they made wine, they didn't have all these fancy systems we have today. And so what would happen is you'd drink wine, and the tannin and the sediments and everything would sink to the bottom of the cup. And they're really big cups. They're like chalices, right? Nobody drank the bottom of the cup. Why? Because it tasted terrible it was bitter, it was miserable, friends. Well, guess what? Babylon drinks the bottom of the cup. They don't get the top, they get the bottom. Every single piece of wrath is stored up for them, and it'll just be poured out, and it'll just be insane. It's undiluted. It's final. They will drain the cup. That, friends, is a shout of victory. I know it doesn't sound like it, right? But we we win we win this is it this is it we win the game we win the war God is on the throne nothing can change it and so I want to leave you with four unshakable truths you probably are really really upset with me today, <laughs> but don't be because here's some four some truths that I want us to remember the band can come up no matter how hard this may be for us to hear no matter how hard it is for us to understand or to face the fact that persecution's coming and let me tell you something I just want to say this because I feel like I need to say this. We are not entitled to say to the Lord we do not want to face persecution because for centuries people have died at the hands of their faith. But all of a sudden we think we somehow exempt. No God, that's not what you want for us as the American church or the Western church. We want better. No friends, it's coming. It's the, it's the very thing that unites us as a body of believers. And it might not be severe for you. You might not be stoned to death. Please God, you aren't. But it might be for somebody else. But your persecution, your opposition will be severe for you. Believe me, whatever it is. Maybe it's the fact that you can't speak about Jesus in your workplace. Maybe it's because you've lost your job as a result of following Christ. Maybe it's because your friends don't want to be your friends anymore because they think that you're a happy clappy now. Whatever the persecution is, maybe it's that boyfriend that left you, the parents that have disowned you, it will come, friends. It's okay. Expect it. Pray for those people. Love them like Jesus loves them. Continue to warn them about what's coming. And so, this is not a scary message. And we as the church find our hope not in comfort, we don't find it in pleasure. We don't find it in the systems of this world that it has to offer us. We find our comfort in Jesus Christ, the immovable one, the one who is the singularity. He is the point by which this entire universe was created. And guess what? He's been stewarding his creation from day one, and he'll be there at its end. He is the priest that we read about in Revelation, walking amongst the lampstands, keeping the fire of the church burning brightly. He loves these people. He's the man from Daniel chapter 7. The same one who is the son of man and the son of God. The one who loves us with a fierce love, who is unrelenting in his love, whose kingdom cannot be shaken and it cannot be destroyed. That's the God that we believe in. But it should make us hurt for the lost. Because let me tell you, friends, that judgment is real and the wrath is real. And so let us never, ever become comfortable with it. Let us never just think, oh, well, they chose that. It's up to them. The truth is they did choose it. But let us hurt for the lost. And the last thing I wanna say to us is that it should make us so grateful for our salvation. I wanna say this today that none of you in this room, including myself and all the people behind me are perfect. None of us here deserve the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care how religious you are, how great you've been, what an amazing parent you have been, how many times you read your Bible, how many times you pray, you do not deserve the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives it to us as a gift, freely given to all of us in this room. And I'm saying that to you this morning because when you walk out of this room, understand that that gift is open to every single human being. It's not up to us to judge who gets it and who doesn't get it, God does that. Our job is to tell them that this gift exists and it's got nothing to do with what you've done. No matter how sorted your past might be, no matter how sorted your life may be right now, Jesus' gift is open. And that's what I wanna end with, friends. I wanna end with this, is that the reminder that we get from this entire book of Revelation? you're gonna say, Mark, you say this every week, but you know it's the truth, I can't stop saying it. The last reminder we have to understand is that the only hope that's left, the only hope that this world has, in the face of what's coming, is the message of the gospel that's what we have that's the solution that's the answer to the woes of this world friends and it's when the gospel is preached with power with conviction with grace with love our hearts breaking with their hearts that people start to see that the savior we believe in is a savior worth following you know chertrillion always said this that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church In other words the more christians you kill the more churches are built why because if you are willing to die for your faith i want to live for your faith there is nothing left on this earth worth dying for friends but there is one who is worth dying for and his name is jesus and if he calls us to do that let us be a church that says here we are lord send us seeking the welfare of the city friends means we pray for the city we love the city we're right there with the city hand in hand arms linked together Not better than them, not more. Holy than them, but beneficiaries of the grace that we so don't deserve, yet we have. Let's pray. Can I ask you to stand? Holy Spirit, I pray right now that every word that was spoken today would be seasoned, Lord, with your power. That if I said anything today that offended anyone, I pray, Lord, that you would bring that through the Wisdom of your truth, Lord. Not our truth, not the truth that we hope in, but your truth, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'd put a guard over our hearts, Lord, because the enemy wants to come and steal the things that we have. And I pray, Lord, for Hope Rock Church and for every church in the city and every church in this nation, Lord, that you would wake us up. If we're asleep, Lord, wake us up. And if we're naked, if we've let our guard down, if we've stopped focusing on what you want us to focus on, Give us wisdom to get back to where you need us to be. Set us on fire, Lord. Help us to remember how grateful we are for what you did on the cross. And give us the courage to preach it at every moment of every day. In Jesus' name we pray.